Please turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Numbers chapter 18. We'll look briefly this morning at Numbers chapter 18. I'll read verses 1 through 7, and it'll provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage this morning. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, so in a moment we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. But before we go to Hebrews chapter 5, let's look together at Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18. God has been establishing among his people that the priesthood does not belong to them, but to him. The relationship that God has with us is not ours to manage. It is his to administer. And so Numbers chapter 18 continues with this point. Verses 1 through 7, Numbers 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Also bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, and they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar lest they die, they and you also. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not Come near you, and you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Amen. The Lord here calls attention to something important for his people. To be his people means that they have to live with him. This is not an easy business. He is holy and hates sin. But we are wholly sinful. It means that if we're going to have a relationship with God, it is bound to be a relationship of wrath and judgment. Unless God intervenes and makes a change, which here in Numbers 18 he does, He makes a series of changes. First, he gives the tribe of Levi to the priestly work. So that there should be a multiplicity of persons always able and ready to do the work of keeping peace between God and humanity. Secondly, he gives the priesthood specifically to one family of Levites, Aaron and his descendants. That they should have the unceasing devotion to this intercession between God and humanity. That peace should prevail between God and humanity. 
But notice what's said in verse 1. That this gift of the priesthood, this gift of the Levitical tribe, is to bear the weight of all the sin of Israel and all the tabernacle. They can't do it, can they? This is why priests perpetually die and are replaced. This is why animals are perpetually sacrificed morning and evening, day after day, year after year. Because the gift of this priesthood, which was so beautiful and so important for preserving peace between God and humanity, couldn't ultimately accomplish its goal. A new priesthood was needed. A better priesthood. With this in mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Our sermon passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll begin reading in verse 4. And to the horror of at least one of my children, we will end in verse 9. The middle of the sentence. Hebrews chapter 5. We'll begin reading with verse 4 and we'll read through verse 9. Hear again the word of the Lord. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having become and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Amen and amen. About this time in the year, the cornfield becomes an exciting place, especially if there's a good amount of rain that summer. The corn grows up and its tasseled tops are higher than your head when you're a little boy. And you get to look out through those rows and they're so straight and clear. They just look like paths into Narnia and they're irresistible. Now, unbeknownst to little boys, those paths are not as straight as they seem because on the other end of the field, the tractor had to turn around. And so if you plant yourself in a path and follow it all the way to the other end, you'll actually just end up doing circles of the cornfield. At some point, you have to cross the rows of corn to get out of the field. Now, if you're a smart farm boy, you know that. And so you know that at some point you have to start crossing the corn rows. But if you really want to have fun, you don't count the number of rows you've crossed to get in there. What is more, when you get into the middle, you start crisscrossing back and forth between the rows and spinning circles inside them. So that, hopefully, the cornfield is big enough. The moment comes when you are hopelessly and utterly lost. It's really easy to do. 
And one day, in about 40 acres of corn, I got myself hopelessly lost. And I thought to myself, like a shrewd farm boy, I will look up at the big sun and I will follow it out of the cornfield. Wouldn't you know it was a gray day? There were clouds everywhere. So I thought to myself with a slight hint of panic, how do I get out of this cornfield now? And along came my trusty companion, my little farm dog, Tippy. She plopped at my feet. I looked down to her and the light bulb went off. And I said, Tippy, let's go home. She leapt up, darted between the corn, and I followed her right out to the road. She knew the way. She didn't have to see it. And I had only to follow her. In like manner, friends, we get lost in this life, wondering about many things, our future, our relationships, our children's future, our work, and we get lost and turned around and we don't know up from down and even the sky seems black and there's no sun to see. We have only to follow Jesus. This is what the text this morning would impress upon us. That Jesus is God's perfect priest. Jesus is God's perfect priest. And for this reason we have only to follow him. Let us follow him. Look at the text with me this morning. Notice in verse 4 it says that no man takes this honor to himself. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. The honor that is referenced here is explained in verses 1 through 3, which we looked at last Lord's Day. It is the honor of serving as high priest, as being the human who is chosen out from among men, that's verse 1, in order to present on humanity's behalf gifts and sacrifices, also verse 1. So that with compassion... He might sympathetically understand the weakness of humanity and correct those who are ignorant and going astray. That he, as the representative of humanity, he as the one human who, with humans, directs them into a happy and holy relationship with God, has a tremendous honor. The honor of being the human in whom all humans Find peace with God. But notice in verse 4, we are told no human takes this honor to himself. When Aaron was put into the office of priest and given the responsibility to bear the weight of sin so that God and humanity could live together in peace and happiness, Aaron didn't make that choice. If we were to read through again those verses... Chapters 17, 18, 19, God makes it explicit repeatedly. Aaron didn't choose the priesthood. God chose him. And so too it was with Jesus Christ. He was called by his heavenly father. He did not assume the priesthood. It was part of his father's will. It was part of his father's plan. The point in this for us is very important. As self-explanatory and simple as it seems, Aaron didn't choose to be a priest. God chose Aaron to be a priest. 
Jesus didn't choose to be the priest. God chose Jesus to be the priest. Then it begs the question, why do you and I always insist on playing priest? Why is it that if no one may take to himself or herself the honor of relating to God on his or her own terms, why do we, even as mature believers, constantly seize the reins of the relationship? Why do we insist that God deal with us as we want Him to, and not as He wishes to? Why do we set terms for His love and command Him to care for us in a manner that is pleasing to us instead of pleasing to Him? Why do we say, Father, here are my works, accept them? Why do we look upon our employment as a source of self-worth? Why do we look upon our relationships as a source of personal validation? Why do we not recognize that the one true honor of bringing God and humanity into a loving and affectionate relationship does not belong to you? You cannot take the initiative. And you cannot repair the relationship. I was reminded this morning, Tom announced the uh, short-term mission trip to Airdrie has just ended. I was on a short-term mission trip to Airdrie more years ago than I care to admit. And I was trying to impress on their youth group, which was made up of pretty much unbelieving youth from the community, this idea. And I said, do you know how when you do something wrong to your parents, you can say, I'm sorry, and they smile at you and say, that's okay? And all the kids are like, yeah, yeah, sometimes. And then I said... Have you ever done something to your parents and they didn't smile at you and say that's okay? And they all got really quiet and they're like, yeah. And I said, that's what it's like when you sin against God. You can't make him happy. There was complete silence. And a little boy in the back said, I cannot. Scottish for I can't. And I said, no. You can't fix this. Your relationship with God is damaged by your selfishness and your sin. And if you were to willfully assert the reconciliation between yourself and Him, if you were to take to yourself this honor of the priesthood, you would only be adding to your sin. You would only be adding to that self-righteousness that alienates you from true righteousness in Christ Jesus. No, it is Jesus alone who has been called by God just as Aaron was, to be the one through whom and in whom we have a happy and healthy and holy relationship with God. This honor belongs to him, not to you. With this in mind, the Holy Spirit then pulls two Old Testament passages, perhaps unexpectedly, to establish his point. A happy relationship with God for you is not in you but in Christ. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It appears that verse 5 seems to say that God has chosen as his priest, as the one who's going to put God and humanity back together again, his own son. 
That's apparent. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But the choice to use this quote from Psalm 2 is is a little jarring and unexpected if we know the rest of Psalm 2. We're good psalm singers, a lot of us. What is Psalm 2 about? Is it about the priesthood of Christ? It is not. What is it about? The kingship of Christ. In Psalm 2, when it says, You are my son, today I have begotten to you, it refers to, He is heir to the throne of the world. He is God's successor as crown prince. This verse strikingly brings us into a surprising conclusion. That not only has God called one to be priest of humanity, to lead humanity into a loving relationship with the Father, but the priest he has chosen is king. He has chosen to merge the offices. Now when Aaron was called by God to be priest, he was not given any authority to rule over Israel. He was not handed a scepter or a crown. He was not seated on a throne. Aaron was called into the priestly office, which was distinct from the kingly office. And when David was summoned to take up the scepter and the crown as a descendant of Judah to fulfill the prophecy in Genesis, David did not serve as priest, but had priests to serve at the ark for him. This is different. Jesus is the unification of the two offices. The bringing together in this great and glorious expression, king and priest. Jesus not only has the tremendous honor of being the priest who leads God's people into a loving relationship with God. Jesus is also the king who rules over them. He is the king priest. He is the son of God who in his divinity and in his humanity has brought together God and man forever. This is the glory with which he is glorified. And it again begs the question of us. Then why do we constantly try to rule over our own lives? If Jesus is the one high priest called by God to lead us into a loving relationship with the Father, then why are we trying to constantly please the Father with our own works? In like manner, if Jesus as high priest is also our king and sovereign... He is the Son of God, begotten of God eternally, not made, in order to rule and reign over as head of all humanity. Then why are we always trying to submit Him to our will? Why do we try to run our lives and tell Him what we want? Instead of acknowledging He is the priest leading us into love with the Father. He is the King ruling and reigning over us. And the symmetry of these two comes together in verse 6. He also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Those who know the book of Hebrews knows that I cannot spend a lot of time on this phrase, order of Melchizedek. You will hear much more in the weeks to come. There are many more verses and many more chapters that will revisit this magnificent man, Melchizedek. Let us suffice to say for today 
that Melchizedek and Jesus have this in common. They were both priest and king. Just as verse 5 has established for us that the priest Jesus, the priest God chose, Jesus, was first king and now he's king-priest, so he is, according to the order or manner of Melchizedek, he is a priest-king. He is a unification of the two offices. That the totality of our salvation should be in him, in his person. He is a priest forever in the manner of Melchizedek, being both priest and king. The weight of this verse, I think, falls on the word forever. The difference between Jesus and Melchizedek and the way in which Melchizedek is but a type or shadow, an anticipation of Jesus, is that Melchizedek came and went with one brief story in Genesis. And evidently, David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picked up on that and was like, that guy Melchizedek who appears once very briefly in a story in Genesis was a big deal. And he put him in Psalm 110. But outside of those two brief passages in the Old Testament, we're not actually sure who this Melchizedek is. Except that he anticipates Jesus. Jesus, unlike Melchizedek, however, is permanent. He is priest-king permanently. He has inherited this royal title and occupies it permanently. We can say with the shorter catechism... He has become fully God, fully man, forever. Jesus has taken to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. That he might be like you forever. That he might be human and among humans forever. That as a priest he might dwell with people forever. This is not a simple passing of a story in Genesis This is not a simple celebration in the psalm of 110. This is a perpetual office that Jesus has taken to himself. That in his person, we should have the summing up, the totality of all salvation, of all humanity, of the heavens, of the new heavens and the new earth. Once again, we see Hebrews' terrific pattern. The person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is God, man. He is priest and he is king. And if we were looking at a different passage, we would throw in there prophet. He is God, man, fulfills those offices. As our mediator in intercession. As the one true human. He is prophet, priest, and king. In him is the fullness of salvation. The completeness of salvation. With this in mind. It begs the question, why do you keep expecting your spouse to save you? Your husband cannot save you. Your wife cannot save you. Why do you keep expecting your parents to save you? One day they will let you down. Many, many times. Why do you expect your children to save you? Why do you expect yourself to save your children? Why do you expect your job to save you? Why are we constantly manufacturing these little idols of the heart, to paraphrase John Calvin, 
day after day, imagining that there is hope and salvation in someone or something that doesn't start with J and end with Jesus. He is salvation. Jesus is the one whose name means he saves. He was called by God to save. He was glorified by God to save. He is the Son of God in order to save. He is a priest forever in order to save. This is who he is. He's the Savior. There isn't another one. There isn't anyone else. How does he save? Hebrews is constantly laying before us the person of Christ, but so also the work of Christ. In verses 7 through 9 that we'll look at this morning, we see again his work. Notice first in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. The first work that Jesus undertakes as high priest is atonement for sin. It is the most urgent and immediate need of humanity. If God, becoming man in order to save men, should solve their first and most urgent problem, he's going to need a sacrifice. Indeed, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we were told that the specific purpose for which priests were appointed was to present gifts and sacrifices for sin. So we see in verse 7, this is precisely what Jesus does. In the days of his flesh, that is in his earthly ministry, in that three years or so that he walked the earth, which is recorded for us in the Gospels, he offered up prayers and supplications. He was one who was in constant conversation with his father. When he raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, he prays. Before he offers the bread and the fish to the crowds of thousands, he prays. When he takes the bread and the cup in the Last Supper in order to serve his sacrifice for sin to his disciples, he begins with prayer. He is one who is perpetually in prayer and supplication. We're told time and again, he would flee from the crowds in the middle of the night to get away on a mountaintop in the dark in order to pray. He is one perpetually in prayer and supplication. But this verse says specifically that these prayers and supplications which he offered were vehement cries and tears. That should draw us to one specific prayer time. It was night. It was a hilltop. It was the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. But notice what the Holy Spirit says about that high priestly intercession that night. He was heard by the one who was able to save him from death. Does that strike you as unusual? Because we know from the Gospels that that night he was not saved from death, was he? If Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was offering up prayers and supplications with cries and tears, and was heard by his Father who loved him and said yes to him, then he must not have asked to be saved from death. 
What did he pray for that night? What did he cry out for with tears and loud cries? What did he scream from the very depths of his soul when he prayed as your priest that night? What did he ask for? Not my will. Your will be done. Why did he pray that? He knew the Father's will. The Father's will was to save you. Not him. This is how he is our high priest. With loud cries and tears, with prayers and supplications, he screams from the heart of his soul, Don't save me. Save them. This is what your priest does. He loves you. And in the darkest night of his life, and in the uh, depths of his loneliness, he says... I pray for them. Save them and not me. This is his first work to offer himself a sacrifice for sin willingly. To offer up not only his voice in prayer, not only his tears as genuine expression of emotion, but to offer up his very life for you, for your salvation. The second thing he does is in verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Though as a son, that is being perfectly aligned with the father in all things. As a son, that is to say he was very God and truly God. He was not lacking in any godness. Being holy and utterly holy. Being righteous and utterly righteous. Yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He who knew no sin learned obedience. It's an extraordinary encouragement to you and me who get sanctification so wrong so often. Jesus wasn't born praying, not my will, but your will be done. He had to learn it. He had to grow into the Gethsemane prayer. He was born a baby in a manger. And he had to submit to his parents, as we see in Luke's story when he goes up to the temple. He had to learn and to grow, to discover obedience to the will of God is actually what is wanted in life, needed in life, and beneficial in life. Though a son lacking nothing from the love of God, though a son, king and head of all the universe, though a son... He learned obedience. He learned to pray, not my will, your will be done. This obedience then is the fulfillment of all God's law. Standing as this perfect righteousness. Freely given to us according to his sufferings. In other words, if we want to get a little more theological. If this hasn't already been a little more theological. We have here the active and passive righteousness of Christ. Got it? What we have here is a verse that tells us Jesus died for our sin. But he also obeyed for our lack of obedience. He has given to us a death that atones for our sin. Further, he has given to us his obedience. That we might be in him sons 
right with God. He, though a son, learned obedience that he might lead us in obedience. That we might learn to suffer as he suffered. That we might not resist the will of our father. We want to play priest and say, God, if we're going to have a relationship, it's going to look like this. And God says, that's not how this works. We want to play king and say, if I'm going to exist in this world, my life is going to go like this. And God says, that's not how this works. Where and how do we learn to submit our wills to the will of our Father? In Christ. In Christ. We follow Him in praying, not my will, your will be done. We see His priestly prayer in Gethsemane. We see His priestly obedience in His earthly ministry. And we are drawn through Him and in Him into such obedience. Then his third and final part of his priestly office is verse 9. And having been perfected, he became author of of eternal salvation to all who obey him. By this phrase, having been perfected, the Holy Spirit does not mean that he lacked perfection and it was added to him. But rather, he who was perfect has been made perfect for the purpose of of others' imperfections. Do you guys follow that? Let me do it again. He who was already perfect was made perfectly able to save those who are imperfect. He became perfect, not in his person, he already was, but in his fulfillment of his office, in his priestly role, in his salvation, in his role as our Savior, And having been perfected, that is, having learned all the obedience that we must learn, having suffered all the things that we must walk through with Him, having borne the cross that He calls us to carry, He has become perfect. Perfect at leading us. Perfect at walking in front of us and saying, come, follow me. Perfect at getting us through all of life's twisty turns and trials. Perfect at getting us through every valley of sin and suffering. He has become perfect as God's priest. Able to bring us into a loving relationship with His Father. Able to bring us into the glory of heaven. And for this reason, the Holy Spirit calls Him here the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Again, you can retreat to your shorter catechism. How does Christ, for those who learn the older version, execute the office of a priest? How does Christ fulfill the office of a priest? He offers up himself as a sacrifice for sin. You know what else he does? He makes continual intercession for us. He is sitting in heaven... With the best pen the world has never seen. And he is becoming an author. He is taking your life story. And every time there's a sin, he's crossing it out and writing, nope, Jesus covered that. And every time you fall short of his righteousness, he's filling the void with his righteousness. 
He is writing the story of your life. And when he turns that book into his heavenly father on judgment day, there will be nothing on page after page after page but the righteousness of Christ under your name. He is the author of eternal salvation. He is the perfect priest who has not only offered himself as a sacrifice for your sin, who has not only created for you that sinless righteousness that he freely gives you by faith, he is the author who is in heaven, who is writing your life story, and he's writing salvation on every page. The author of eternal salvation. Notice the last line. Now do you know why I wanted to end with verse 9 in the middle of a sentence? For all who obey him. What did Jesus tell us to do? What what would obedience to Jesus be in this context? I I, I wanted to to know that I was handling the verse rightly, the word rightly. So I, I searched for the use of the word obedience in the book of Hebrews. Wouldn't you know, it doesn't tell us what obeying Jesus means in the book of Hebrews. So I looked in the rest of the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. And do you know what the single most common command out of the mouth of Christ is in the entire Gospels? It happens to be the first command recorded coming out of his mouth when he meets his disciples. Follow me. That's his command. What does it mean to obey Jesus? It means to walk with Him. And to walk behind Him. To be in a loving relationship with Him wherever He goes. And to say, lead on. Lead on, Jesus. Wherever you go, I'm with you and I'm not afraid. I'll walk with you hand in hand. He is the perfect priest. He knows exactly where He's going. He knows exactly how to get there. And He's not going to let you down. My friends, take His hand and follow Him. Jesus is God's perfect priest. Follow him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the rain that has come down to water the earth. And we thank you for the word that has gone forth to refresh our souls. We thank you that there is life and sunshine and life and rain. And that the world that you have made is made to endure. That we might be here learning and growing and experiencing your love. And we thank you that your word is made to endure. That though the generations of humanity will pass and fade, your word will endure forever. And so we pray, Father, that this word which we have heard today, this summons to put all our faith in Jesus... And to follow hard after Him. That we would delight in it. That we would believe it. We pray that by Your Spirit's power we would be conformed to it. And walk in it. Living out the wisdom that is here. And practicing the joy of Jesus given to us in this. We give You thanks for our Jesus. And ask that today we would be united to Him by faith. And grow up into Him who is our head. For in his name we pray. Amen.